Welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. I'm your host, as always, Liam Edwards, and thank you for once again joining me to cast off a brand new games guest for the 42nd time. With my guest this week, I feel as if I've done a full personal circle. Back in 2013, when I was working on GTA V, I listened to a heck of a lot of podcasts, some of which helped me get through those long crunch hours and push me forward, um, just generally easing me. Uh, into the, the world of crunch and game development, um, but some even inspired me to create this show as well. Uh, and one of those podcasts was called Tone Control, a show in which my guest today uh, started on the side, where he chats with other game developers about their careers and inspirations. It's an excellent podcast that I highly recommend you listen to, but you will be surprised to hear that my guest isn't actually known for that podcast because he's an excellent game developer having started out his career as a tester working at sony he then went on to help design levels on the first fear title and after that experienced uh working on bioshock 2 at 2k marin and then he was a senior level designer on the bioshock 2 expansion minerva's den sticking with bioshock for a little longer he worked at irrational games as a senior level designer on the excellent bioshock infinite in 2012 he co-created an independent studio called the Fulbright Company, and in 2013, the company released their first game, the absolute smash hit, Gone Home, which received incredible reviews across the board and was just, everyone was talking about it for a long time. And now he's working on the company's new game, Tacoma, alongside former Final Games guest, Nina Freeman. I am very excited to say that my guest this week is the incredible Mr. Steve Gaynor. Hello, Steve. (laughs) Hey there, uh, good to be here. Thanks for that uh, that lovely introduction. No <laughs> and, problem. Uh, and for the shout out for Tone Control. I'm, I'm glad that uh, that you got something out of that. <laughs> I awesome. did. I, <clears throat> Tone Control will, it's incredible because obviously you are this, you know, this fantastic indie developer who's made these incredible games that people love. But for me, when I first sort of found out about you and experienced you was through listening to Tone Control, which I <laughs> randomly selected on iTunes once and was like, hey, this is about video game devs <laughs> nice yeah no i mean that was that was kind of the point of well there are two points to recording that show one was just an excuse for me to talk to a bunch of other game developers about their work that yeah you know, i was just interested in because even when you're in the industry if you get together at a you know you're getting a beer or something you're not like so tell me about your design philosophy <laughs> you know so like getting to be able to actually talk to these people about why they do their work and then yeah also um, hopefully, you know, like, uh, being able to give some inspiration to other people that are looking to start their own careers or whatever. So yeah, really cool to hear. And thank you for having me, uh, on the podcast that, uh, at least in small part, uh, you started, you started due to, due to that whole thing. That's awesome. Yeah. As I said, it sort of feels like I've come full circle again, <laughs> which is well, happy to be strange. Here. Yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. So yes. We are here to talk about your final games, but before we get into that, then I think we should talk a little bit maybe about how you started uh, in the games industry. Obviously, you sort of started where I did, which is being a tester, Mm -hmm. but I have literally skyrocketed 
into the space atmosphere where you're now working on Tacoma. Um, tell me a little bit how you got into it then. Yeah, I, um, I mean, when I, when, when I was finishing college, I didn't go to college for any kind of game-related stuff. I got um, a sculpture degree with an art history minor. Um, and it was basically, I had been doing art stuff ever since I was, you know, a kid. And that was kind of the path I was on in college. But at some point, I, you know, I, I realized that games were the thing that, um, that I was most passionate about and kind of the form of entertainment that, that I thought about the most and that, that kind of meant the most to me and realized that, okay, if I'm going to do, if I want to do something creative with my life, it should be in games. And so, you know, at the same time that I started as a tester, yeah, I was also making my own levels um, for fear using the fear level editor that, that they released. Um, and actually my, so my, my first, my first uh, design job in the industry was working on an expansion pack for fear um, because the main game had already come out while I was a tester and they had released their, their full uh, suite of mod tools. And I I got into design by uh, yeah, making my own kind of portfolio of fan levels for the original fear. And then um, Ah, yeah. And then the company that was down in Texas that was making an expansion pack for it uh, needed somebody. And one of the advantages of, using an editor that almost nobody uses uh to make <laughs> to make your your uh level design portfolio is like if there's that one studio that's actually using that tool set and they need somebody on short notice <laughs> they can be like oh you already know how to use these tools all right we'll just hire you <laughs> so um so that was a that was a lucky lucky break for me um but yeah you know i went i kind of stepped up from there from my first level design job to being on Bioshock two to being the lead on the DLC um, to working on infinite. And then, you know, after a year out in Boston, just my wife and I deciding we wanted to be back here in Portland and figuring out how to, how to do our own thing here. So that's kind of how we ended up at Fulbright, you know? So that was what I was wondering. Obviously you went from working on the, you know, this huge, successful franchise which is the bioshock series um what was your sort of inspiration to be doing your own stuff then and maybe not looking for another company to work for well i mean the biggest thing was um my wife is from portland uh and i moved to oregon when i was 19 and it's really my adopted home um yeah and you know we had been away for six years living in san francisco and i had lived in texas for a while and we both lived out in boston and you know i had i had started talking to some other studios about like, oh, maybe I should go work on this or that. Um, and there were some, you know, cool opportunities and everything, but um, we discussed it and we were just like, you know, we just want to be back in Portland. We just want to like, that's where we want to end up. So let's just go there and figure out how to be there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, let's not just like wait for the, you know, keep, keep bouncing around until, I guess someday we go back there to retire or something. Uh, let's just go back there and like <laughs> and and just figure things out. out from there. Yeah. And so, but the thing is, you know, there isn't an established games industry in Portland. Like I couldn't just apply for a level design job in town here really. Um, and so the options are kind of like, okay, see if you can figure out how to do like remote contracting work as your career or, start your own thing here. And so, yeah, I reached out to a couple of people that I had worked with down in the Bay area and 
weirdly convinced them to move up to Portland and for us all to rent a house together. And, and we, and we made a, we made a dang game. Yeah. Which is an incredible story considering how it's turned out. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's like you, you made know, the the correct decision. It's it's almost like we <laughs> we made a good call there. Yeah, no, I mean, it was uh, <laughs> it was the you know it was just the right time for it. It was like right right when the whole like indie boom was really just kind of starting, and yeah. you know Portland was still really cheap even compared to now, and certainly compared to the Bay Area and. You know, uh, it, it, and it was the right kind of game to be making in that situation. You know, like we all lived together in a house and we made a game about, you know, being in a house and kind of having this very personal experience, this very small kind of, um, experience the same way that our, our team and our production was small, but we were able to, to, um, I guess leverage the stuff that we had learned on the Bioshock series about, you know, making a, a compelling, uh, game and just building you know stuff in first person and promoting a game and all that kind of stuff so yeah it all added up and now we're um now we're working on tacoma and it's a much bigger production like complexity wise and we have more people on the staff and all that kind of stuff and we're gonna simultaneously launch on uh, pc and xbox and you know blah 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 blah. so we're kind of (laughs) like stepping it up you know like one one or two notches in on the like, oh, we're a real company now kind of <laughs> kind of scale. Um, but <laughs> we're, we're not, still we're not all in a house now, right? Just yeah, chilling. like yeah. If if our if one of our hiring requirements was like, okay, you need to have good experience within your discipline and be a good match for our team. Oh, and also you have to move into this, I guess, ever expanding house <laughs> <laughs> and live here. I don't think we'd be able to sustain that. Um, no, I don't think so. But uh, but you know it's 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 still a good balance in as much as you know we're we're a little bigger and a little more official now, but we're also still just making the game that we believe in that we think is going to be a good thing to play on its own terms. So you know got, got a little ways to go before it comes out, but we're feeling good about it. Getting more on screen every day. Excellent. Um, yeah. Well. We are a little pressed for time today. Obviously, you are a very busy man working on such incredible <laughs> games. Um, so if you know, if people wanted to find out a bit more about Gone Home and especially Tacoma, there yeah. is obviously an incredible amount of stuff out there. So why don't we jump into your final games then and start talking about sort of the games that you have chosen today, which sure. um, you have said before we started talking that you were, you were like, have I done this right? Have I correctly <laughs> chosen um, games? Because these are like the games I think if I was locked in a room... These are the ones I want to play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to make sure that I was like, this is sort of like Desert Island games, right? Like sort of like, you know, yeah, if, if I... Exactly, that is if, exactly if, if what this is. If this is all I get to play while I'm like trapped somewhere for the rest of my life, then, then this is kind of my my decision. So that was the way that I that I went into it. And I think it still ended up with a, a mix of some things that are just sort of my favorites and something that I could just replay over and over. But um, yeah, I tended more towards towards stuff as you'll see that maybe you know uh is kind of endless in and of itself so yeah excellent well we're going to start talking about your first game then um so why don't we listen to some excellent music and dive straight into steve's final games
Okay, so kicking off Steve's list today, uh, what an incredible game. A game that has featured on the show a few times before. Released originally back in January of 2005. It's been released pretty much on every platform in the known existence from the GameCube to the PlayStation 4. We are, of course, talking about Capcom and Shinji Mikami's masterpiece, Resident Evil 4. Steve, why is this the first game you're taking with you? Resident Evil 4 is one of my favorite games. Uh, I have replayed it. I, I, I've only finished. I've only finished it like maybe three or four times, but I have replayed a good chunk of it, probably eight or ten times through. And it's one of those games that I, I just. It has such a good feel and flow to it and the campaign is so inventive all the way from end to end you're just encountering new things that it's one of those it, it's it's like one of to me it's like one of those you know books that you could just read over and over um and never get tired of it um and i think that you know for me that's some mix between the mechanics feeling so like sharp and responsive and just working as a unit um, in in such a complete way, and then the um, the overall kind of like setting and tone of it has that really. I think in my head, at least, I associate it with a really distinctly uh, Japanese approach to uh, kind of uh, the 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 conflict, but in a way that that ends up working between very like, you know, dark, serious kind of like gritty imagery and then just weird absurdity, um, you know, that you also see in like <laughs> Kojima games and, and stuff where it's sort of yeah. like, you know, the game is kind of dark and scary and, you know, whatever, the chainsaw guy cuts your head off and uh, and it's gory, but then also the dialogue and the and the the plot and the underpinnings of the fiction are just like intentionally i think like campy and ridiculous and actually really funny and i think fairly self-aware um or if they're not self-aware then they got really lucky in just <laughs> hitting it's, a, it's a really good typical... balance by accident you know but i don't i i, I don't know maybe maybe not um, it's just that typical sort of japanese quirkiness that japan thinks is funny right to us just sort of seems like re- self-referential humor in a strange way yeah uh, well, i don't know japanese comedy I, is really hard to understand <laughs> <laughs> i just I, I think that at least for me i think that what i really love about it is that when things are serious you can take them seriously i.e you're in a really intense uh you know con- confrontation with some enemies and you're you're just trying to survive um and your heart is pounding and then when it's not serious, the game isn't taking itself seriously either. And that kind of like being in, you know, being, I feel like on the same wavelength with the player of being like, okay, we aren't going to take ourselves any more seriously than you are. We're acknowledging kind of like the ridiculousness of this, but now you're in this other half of the, the experience and you can just like focus and be like, oh man, this is intense. And that, uh, that kind of, you know, oscillation between, uh, those two points of view just, I think, allows you to be in that experience without it feeling just, like, oppressive and overwhelming. Like, it's it's a weirdly yeah. sort of, like, welcoming experience because 
you and the developers are in on the joke together, I guess, you know? Um, yeah, it's and, not a game yeah. that really... It, it showed that distinct change in Resident Evil sort of philosophy, where it wasn't so much how to scare you, more than just give you those quirky one-liners while also giving you these these monsters to defeat at the same time. Well, not making the player feel too unsafe, I don't think. Right. Well, and sometimes, you know, some parts of the game, I think, are do go all the way into real just, like, survival horror feel. Like, in, I don't know, in in the, the sequence um, where there's the um, almost kind of, like, xenomorph alien type of enemy that's stalking you through those halls and you can uh freeze it with the um with the liquid nitrogen and everything but it's like you it's just you against this really terrifying single almost unkillable enemy um and like that's just a pure horror experience and then some of it is more actiony and sometimes yeah you're you're in one of these situations where it's kind of a mix but you're definitely just on edge the whole time and i think that you know it's one of those games that um had a ton of confidence in coming up with a a a really kind of unproven but very distinctive set of controls and mechanics that like trying to play that game for the first time you're sort of like, what, what, how, how do I, how do I control? Like, you know, it's like tank controls, but then you kind of go into first person when you're aiming, but it's not really first person, but it kind of might as well be, but you know, you're only moving your reticle like around the screen and you know, yeah, you, you can't have, like, move Leon. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got like the, the quick turn mechanic that's super crucial, but like, if you don't know about it or, you know, miss it during the tutorial, the game's way harder and all this kind of stuff. It's like, it's a very um, idiosyncratic game, but it's one of those games that I have a real appreciation for when you're like, oh, so they pushed through and they said, even though these controls aren't like familiar or necessarily intuitive, if you just pick up the controller, that they support the exact kind of experience that they wanted to make with that game. And so they just invested in saying like, no, this is what the game is. And this yeah. is how you play it. And we're not going to change how you play it to make it, you know, more accessible, we're going to say, like, the game is so good that you need to just get used to it. And one, once you understand it, it's the perfect um, kind of uh, method of interacting with this thing that we made. And, um, you know, it has so many layers. Like, I, that's, that's part of the replayability thing for me is, like, aside from just being able to play through it again and again because it's fun, it also has all the different... Um, weapons and upgrades and you're limited in how much you can carry by um the whole grid inventory system so each time by playing you play tetris through, yeah <laughs> but each time you play through you can be like okay i'm not even going to take a pistol this time you know like how how does the game react to that how can i still make progress through this game if i have a totally different loadout you know and that stuff is also really interesting and then you get into the whole thing with mercenaries at the end where they have basically like an endless replayable mode after you finish the game um so i just have a ton of affection for the setting and the characters and the approach to it and then actually playing it is so um dynamic uh and has such good feel to it that i would want to be able to just replay resident evil 4 whenever uh whenever it struck my fancy if if i only had eight games to pick <laughs> so how many times have you actually completed the game and have you played through like the most recent sort of PlayStation 4 or Xbox One version? Um, I 
I I think yeah, I think I've only finished it maybe like three times or something like that, but I've gotten a good amount of the way through it, probably two or three times as many times as that. Like I've gotten to like the castle or the island um multiple times and just sort of some other games come out or I've gotten distracted or whatever. Um but uh I did I think I did buy it and I think I did buy it on PS4. Um just because, yeah, for the same reasons on this list, I kind of want to have it on any uh, device that <laughs> that I can. Like, I, you know, I, I actually, I never, well, I owned a GameCube, but I never had it on GameCube. I first played it on PS2, actually, when I was a tester um, at, at Sony, um, working on oh, PlayStation wow. testing. Good game uh, to test. Yeah, um, well, weird story about that. So I wasn't actually a tester on that. Um, I was only I wasn't a tester on very many cool, like exciting games. One of the few games that uh, I got to be a tester on that was like cool was um, when they did the special edition release of Metal Gear Solid Three. Um, when they released Metal Gear Solid Three Subsistence, uh, yeah. I was a tester on that, so that was cool. Um, most of the other stuff was just stuff that you know, you've never heard of or whatever, but there's this weird thing where back when I worked there, they had a policy that was basically like, if a game came in for test, they needed people there to just like jump right on it. Um, but you know, during the holidays and stuff, like during the slow parts of the year, like the middle of December or whatever, it's sort of like, okay, well, most games have already been through cert. So I was a certification tester. Um, yeah, yeah. So they would just like send in games that were trying to get certified for release. So there was basically just a bunch of different like you were the you know, best kind of tester. <laughs> it was it was it was fun. Uh, Q because... QA testers, I can tell, are jealous. We're <laughs> well, jealous of cert testers. That's for I, sure. I also, I, I mean, I was also in QA on a single title for like I, I was only in cert QA at Sony for like six months, and then okay. I went to a studio in San Francisco and. I was a uh, full-time QA on one title for, for a year before I got into design. But yeah, during the, the cert QA time, the way it works for people that aren't familiar is, yeah, um, if you want to release a game on Xbox or uh, PlayStation or the, a Nintendo console, you, as a developer, make the game, bug test it, make sure that you know it, it hits all the requirements, and then you send it to the platform holder and their testers put it through a battery of tests to make sure that it's not like when I was doing, when I was working on stuff that it's not like if you pull out the memory card while it's saving, it doesn't like corrupt your hard drive or something like that. And other, you know, just like if you do something super normal, it doesn't just crash the game. So everybody who buys this game, is going to get this crash all the time or, or whatever, but it's sort of like high level stuff. So as a tester, it would be like, okay, here's this game that's trying to be released. The developers basically think it's finished. We have to test it for like two weeks to, put it through all its paces. And then if yeah. there aren't any like critical bugs, then it can be released. And if there are, we send it back or we're going to have to test it again when they send it back in. So yeah. as a tester, you were kind of like every couple of weeks, they'd be like, okay, here's the game you're testing now. Put a bunch of hours into it and log any bugs that you find. Okay. That one's done. Here's another game. Um, which like you said, that's cool. You get to play a bunch of games that you never would have touched otherwise and kind of understand them more deeply because you have to play them for like dozens of hours. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um but yeah, so like during slow times, they're like, We need people here in seats in case a game comes in. But we don't have any games to test right now because everybody's already tested all their stuff for at least during the holidays. So but if you're gonna be here kind of on call, you need to be like 
at le- basically you need to at least look like you're working. So they were like, if we're in downtime, and you don't have a game to test. You can just bring in your own games from home and you have to be playing them for the entire time that you're sitting here at one of the test stations <laughs> waiting for another game to come in. So That's incredible. I, yeah. So I played through Resident Evil 4, Shadow of the Colossus, uh, the Warriors, the, the Rockstar game, um, all for the first time all to completion um, while I was being paid whatever, $12 an hour oh, man. Uh, in Sony cert. Um, so anyway, so I played Resident Evil 4 for the first time on on PS2. And yeah, I've bought it on like Xbox 360 and then the more recent Steam release and then PS4 um, and on the Wii and played it with the, the, the motion the, controls, yeah. which actually is a really good it's a really yeah, good for Resident Evil 4, yeah. Because, you know, it's like you're aiming a laser pointer. Okay, that actually makes sense. Like, um, So, yeah, so I think I do have it just because it's like I can't ever not buy a version of Resident Evil 4 when it's released. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> well, I imagine going to the island, there is a specific version you want to take. Is, do you have like a favorite version? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I might just bring the um the pc version that was just released uh maybe like a year ago or whatever on steam because it's a really good port it's it's totally good and and serviceable um it plays well with a gamepad but then you would also have the weird option of playing with mouse and keyboard which i've never done (laughs) so uh i would take it for that reason (laughs) excellent well I think that was an excellent game to kick things off. So we're going to move on now to your next game. And we're going to talk a little bit about the island in which you are trapped on a little bit. So why don't we listen to some music from this next game and let's dive straight into it. Steve, before we get on to your next game then, we have to talk a little bit about the island that you're trapped on. Um, So we give you the option of choosing where you want to be trapped. So it has to be Mm. from the world of, or the realm of video games, in a sense, anywhere from video games, but remembering that there will be no one there, no NPCs, no nothing. So you can choose anywhere to be stranded and play these eight games. Is there anywhere that sort of comes to mind immediately or... Somewhere I mean, that you think of that's beautiful, maybe? Yeah, the I mean, just just going by gut, the two places that came to mind first were uh like the the forest from uh Legend of Zelda Link to the Past. Like I mean, you know, it's a sprite game. I guess it's not clear what it would be like if you were actually in that, but I we'll have to it make it being really game pretty. Is bright. <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> I, I mean, I would hope that I wouldn't have to be 2D to, to live there. Let's say it was a, a real place. But, like, that or, yeah, like, the... I guess I'm just thinking, for whatever reason, I'm just thinking of Nintendo trees. I'm, I'm like, the, the forest from Link to the Past or, like, a nice forested village from Animal Crossing. <laughs> so I guess those are... I guess I want to hang out in a nice green cartoon forest while I play these games. <laughs> well, I think as... W- I think to stick on what we're going to talk about next, I think I'm going to force you to take your second option. Okay. And I'm going to, I'm going to say we're sending you off to a wonderful foresty town in Animal Crossing because we're going to talk about your second game now. And, of course, obviously needs no explanation as we've just mentioned it, um, but originally released all the way back in uh, 2001 in Japan for the Nintendo 64 as Debutsu no Mori. Uh, Steve has chosen the Nintendo GameCube title, Animal Crossing, <laughs> developed by the Nintendo EAD team all the way back. Steve, you were like, I was like, which Animal Crossing? You were like, the first? <laughs> I'm, <laughs> true, I'm, true. I'm old school that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and so for the, for the island that I'm trapped on, I'm going to actually veto the, an Animal Crossing village because... Okay. If the, if there's no other NPCs in it, it would just be depressing and sad. You would be in an empty Animal Crossing village with you no would, animals. You would. It would be the worst Animal Crossing village ever. Yeah. So <laughs> You've driven I'm, everyone out. Yeah. So I'm going with yeah, like the Lost Forest in in Link to the Past because I would much rather just be in a forest that's supposed to be a forest than like the saddest deserted <laughs> Animal Crossing village you can imagine. Um, but yeah, I mean, part of part of what I really like about Animal Crossing is that it always felt like it was when you played Animal Crossing it was really a window into another place that you were visiting you know like it, it ran on the same 24 hour clock that our real world did it it had the seasons and the holidays and everything like our real world does but you were just a person in that place that, you know, it, it's, it's a really weird, unique kind of version of saying this video game is a place that you can visit. And these little animals live here. And, you know, the, the carpet salesman comes through town, uh, once a, once a week. And, um, you know, it's, it continues existing while you're away from it. It's a place that you can spend as much time in as you want or, or don't want. And there's something that is really attractive to me, especially in terms of saying, okay, you know, that you only have these eight games for the rest of, you know, eternity while you're trapped on this island to be able to say this isn't like, I had originally thought possibly of including um, in the place of Animal Crossing, including The Sims on this list because I really yeah. love The Sims and um, there's something attractive about being able to build these little communities and all that, that kind of stuff. But um, I think what I realized when I was thinking about it is like with the Sims, you can kind of make your fantasy version of, of a reality that you want to see. And that feels to me like it would be something that would actually kind of like compound your loneliness sort of <laughs> be like, Oh, oh I'll, I'll pretend that I have friends. I'll just make myself some friends. Oh, look yeah, at this, definitely like, that sort of, Look at this nice house that I'm imagining <laughs> that I could be in. Look Whereas, at all these people I've made to be yeah. my friends. <laughs> and like in Animal Crossing, you're kind of playing by by the game's rules. You know, like animals move in and out of your village. 
time passes plants grow you know like the 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 secret shop only appears on certain days and you're just kind of visiting and making your way within that world and there's something that is way more attractive to me about being like okay well i can just visit my animals whenever i want <laughs> oh look somebody it's, new it moved seems, into town <laughs> it definitely seems a lot more natural like yeah. uh, like this the, the stuff that happens and develops is a lot more natural than in the sims way it's almost like you can make it happen whenever you want whereas yeah. with animal crossing sometimes you have to wait like yeah. where is my favorite neighbor oh he's not here today yeah. Oh, I'll wait till tomorrow. And it's sort yeah. of just like real life almost. You have to wait for things to happen. And that definitely seems like it would uh, maybe starve off the, the insanity for a little <laughs> bit longer. Yeah, um, I mean, I think it would be interesting because, you know, I've, I've played a lot of Animal Crossing um, over the years, uh, just like picking it up and playing it for like a number of months. Like when we were making Gone Home, we had an Animal Crossing village that, uh, that some of us uh, had... Uh, villagers in that we kind of maintained while we were living in that house together and everything and when i first the second job uh-huh <laughs> yeah paying off the mortgage on our video game houses um <laughs> but uh you know but I, i've never had an animal crossing village that i have maintained for like years and years and years at a stretch and yeah if it was one of your eight games that is keeping you company for the rest of eternity on an island it would be pretty fascinating, I think, to be like, man, I created this village, you know, 15 years ago, and, and I've been, like, visiting it and maintaining it and seeing how it's changed uh, throughout that entire time, uh, and that would be pretty interesting. Oh, my God, you could also write letters to yourself continually, and you can also write <laughs> letters of your experiences being trapped in the Lost Woods. And then one day when, like, explorers come and find, they can read through all your crazy scrawlings on animal crossing <laughs> through the messages you've written and posted to yourself <laughs> i approve i approve very much so why specifically then the first one compared to maybe like you know you talked about new leaf a minute ago um mm -hmm. sort of why specifically the first one then it for me it just has like a purity and simplicity to it that it, it feels kind of unencumbered and more straightforward almost kind of more naive in a way um that i find really attractive i have played more recent animal crossing games and it's one of those things where as as um series develop sometimes i feel like they they find ways to basically like become more convenient or like cater to what they've determined our players' desires in a more direct way and sort of like, yeah, just just be, be become kind of uh, more focused or, or focus really on, you know, like, oh, okay, so this thing is annoying or, you know, people, people don't like to have to do this, so we'll just take that out and make this um, easier to do or, or quicker or whatever. Um, and... I think that, you know, there's something that I really like about the original Animal Crossing being like, no, you have to do things by the post office's schedule. Like, you have to. Yeah. You, you can't just, like, you know, send a bunch of stuff as one mass package or, like, the other kind of... I don't even remember what some of the kind of, like, efficiency upgrades that they put in were, but they kind of took out some of the stuff about the game that I already, that I, that I really appreciated, which was like that everything was just sort of like, nope, this is how stuff works. 
you you want to you want to <laughs> like do the thing you have to like go to the shop when it's open you can't just like mail order stuff and have it appear in your mailbox you know like immediately that kind of stuff um yeah so i and you know i have a nostalgic connection to it just sort of like that was the one that i've played the most and so forth but um it, it feels like yeah it's animal the original or the gamecube animal crossing kind of uh is a game on its own terms uh and uh i i like the the simplicity and kind of the the unencumbered nature of that excellent and also it's a perfect game for the deserted island as you said you have a nostalgic connection to it but also it's a game you can play forever yeah. so it's definitely absolutely perfect for the <laughs> times in which you're going to be stuck in the lost woods but sort of <laughs> Talking about simulators and The Sims, we're going to move on to your next game now, which isn't The Sims in a sense, but you're, you're going to be still living out that fantasy of having some sort of human civilization connection in a strange way. So let's listen to some music from this next game and let's dive straight into it. So the next game on Steve's list is the game developed by Maxis all the way back in 1994, originally for the Amiga and the DOS systems, but it was ported to, you know, the PlayStation, the N64, uh, even had it released on the PlayStation 3 PSN back in the day, um, obviously designed by the excellent Will Wright and published by EA. It's SimCity 2000. Not quite the simulator where you can sort of create your own fantasy, but definitely still clinging on to that oh, I'm desperate for civilization type thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, like, The Sims, for me, felt like a little bit too much of, like, a direct fantasy kind of thing. And, like, you know, a thing about, like, yeah. oh, I'll, I'll buy a bigger TV, you know, or, like, all this kind of, like, consumerist stuff. It's like, oh, well, I can't actually buy all the things to make me happy now that I'm stuck in the Lost Woods. So, uh, you know. But with SimCity... Um, I think there's something really interesting about being able to say like, like SimCity is more of, I feel like a canvas for creating different approaches to, yeah, like a community, you know, a, a city unto itself saying like, okay, I'm going to try, you know, building a city that, uh, you know, really focuses on having the residential and commercial stuff integrated. And, you know, I'm going to try, you know, some really different terrain and see how I can make that work. Or, you know, I'm just going to picture what if the city, you know, work this way or work that way um, and be able to play within those systems to kind of try a different version of what 
its city building rules allow you to do and kind of test the the boundaries of that while also it being in the form of like i'm creating a human you know like civilization basically you know like a, a bastion of civilization so i think that being you know isolated in the lost woods there's something that's attractive about being able to say like oh well i'll i'll imagine that i'm you know creating this city um, with other people, but also systemically, there's you know the 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 possibility space of being able to kind of picture different versions of what a city could be, and then try to put that on screen under all these um, different conditions. And then you know, for me, like I picked SimCity 2000 just because it's kind of the one that I was the most familiar with when I was growing up, and yeah. um, you know, I never got super deep into like. SimCity 3 or 4 or the most recent one. Um, I did play around with them and stuff, but I think kind of similar to the Animal Crossing thing, I felt like SimCity 2000 was a really good balance between being a, 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 a full realization of what SimCity was um, kind of started out as conceptually without drifting so far from the original thing that... Um, that it felt like it was kind of expanding past the borders of what it was originally envisioned for. Um, so it, it seems like a, like a good a good one to pick uh, if you're going to pick a SimCity. Though now that I think of it, the SNES SimCity is also yeah. really good. Uh, so I guess that <laughs> if, if for some reason I couldn't have SimCity 2000, I would pick the SNES port of the original SimCity because I played that a lot when I was growing up. And it similarly, I think, was like a really good version of itself and had a great focus um, on what made that game good, uh, but also made yeah. it accessible as a console game, which is actually really impressive considering the SNES only had like what a D pad and six buttons. <laughs> well, yeah, eight, we're eight if you like, include start and select, but yeah. And we're in 2016 now, and still those type of simulating, you know, simulation games like city builders and even like civilization apart from civilization revolution which worked really well still don't quite work well enough on consoles to be released so yeah it's incredible it, what it's was really done rare, back yeah. then yeah yeah and that it's probably somewhere similar to civ, civ civilization revolution it's probably a similar thing where it's like the original sin city was simple enough that they could even simplify it a little bit further and make it accessible as um, something you could play on a on an SNES gamepad. Um, but you know, they couldn't really take the new versions of SimCity and just throw them on a console because it's like, okay, how do you draw like curved roads without a mouse? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of stuff that that really kind of relies on a more complex um, input device, I think. And so yeah. finding that balance. Uh, is definitely something that, yeah, RTS games and city builder games and stuff like that uh, have um, have always kind of found a barrier with when when getting off of PC and onto a onto a controller interface. I think. So obviously, when we first started talking, we were talking about Portland and you going back mm -hmm. there and it sort of being a home for you. Is this going to be like the first place you're going to try and recreate um, <laughs> while you're trapped, trying to recreate home, trying to recreate the city? Do you have like a good mental image of where you could maybe create some districts of it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the nice thing about Portland is it's a little bit like San Francisco in as much as it doesn't have as distinct of... 
um, you know, physical boundaries to kind of give it a border. It's not on a peninsula like that, but it is a very self-contained city. Like it has clear boundaries and it has a river that runs north to south through the middle of it. And then a main kind of road Burnside that goes, uh, crosses the river through the other central, uh, through the, through the center of the city in the other direction and kind of splits it into quadrants. And, uh, it's pretty clear to picture how you could recreate that in SimCity, I think. Excellent. Well, I think that's pretty self-explanatory as well. Steve, <laughs> you have been talking about video games for a long time, haven't you? <laughs> I love to. I love to, to cast pods and just <laughs> gab into mics. <laughs> well, I'm glad because you're being an excellent guest so far. And I'm <laughs> wondering about the next game as well, because we're going to move on now. And you had this game down as a wild card originally. And your reasoning was that this game, you would only choose it if you could have mods as well. So I'm very interested to hear what you think of the game without mods and also why mods is so extremely important to this choice. So why don't we listen to some excellent music from composer Inonzer and let's dive straight into the next game. So if you didn't guess from that music already, which I'd be amazed if you didn't, of course we are talking about the incredible post-apocalyptic uh, action RPG developed by Bethesda Gameworks and published by Bethesda Softworks, directed by Todd Howard and released all the way back in 2008 for the PlayStation 3, Xbox 360 and PC. Of course, it is the wonderful Fallout 3. Steve, now, we did say <laughs> we were talking about mods and the game itself. So why was this originally a wild card and what what do you think about the game uh in its vanilla form and now yeah. obviously the amount of mods you can have makes a huge difference well okay so here's the thing for me um the reason i was interested in the mod tools for it is not because i download and use a lot of mods i've really only played fallout 3 without any or maybe like a very small amount of mods installed um so okay, so okay. first and foremost i love fallout 3 as a a fan of the original fallout uh from you know the 90s i played that game when it came out and was a huge fan of it and uh, i think that what uh bethesda did with fallout 3 is a great encapsulation encapsula encapsulation and modernization of that game and I love the the feel of the world and the tone that they struck, which kind of similar to Resident Evil 4 is somewhere between, you know, dark and oppressive and what I feel like is sort of like the right amount of, of levity and not taking itself too seriously when it's appropriate. Um, 
and you know, just like I just love that I, I just love being in that game and how it all adds up. Um, and so for me, it's what the reason I would want. The reason I would want to have Fallout Three if I could have mod tools is because I would want to use the mod tools to make more Fallout Three to play. <laughs> because like <laughs> when, when I played the game, I had like a hundred hour save game and I completed all the quests and everything. And like I would do that again, but I would also really like to be able to say like, okay, well, I'm going to make my own um, vault, you know, over in this part of the the game world and be able to build that and kind of expand the game or change things about it myself to to continue making the experience. Um, new or different or just bigger um and or you know just sort of like fix or change things to say like well what if the world worked differently in this way now now i'll play more with this kind of new set of rules that have been imposed or this new mechanic um and that seems really attractive to me but if it was just sort of like here's fallout 3 you can have it you can play it as much as you want i feel like at some point i would be like well i've really spent as much time in the wasteland as i can maybe this shouldn't have been one of my eight games. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really interesting because obviously I think this is kind of like your creative outlet. Maybe your level design want to still do that. Right. Or, uh, even trapped, which is really interesting because obviously previously we've had your Fulbright companion, Nina Freeman on the show and she chose super Mario maker and right. her justification for choosing that was because she wants that creative outlet to be yeah. able to create levels and still do the sort of game making that she does on a daily basis. Um, so I guess this is not so much about the game, although you do like the game, but more about maybe creating your own game within a game. I'm yeah, <laughs> it, it's it's a little of each, you know. It's it's kind of being able to say like, I love this game. I love the kind of um, uh, creative identity of this game and. I would also want to be able to expand and change and add to it. Um, and, you know, cause it's like, there, there's a lot of games that have mod tools. Like, you know, I could have said Skyrim or like Half-Life 2 or kind of take your pick, but I feel like for a desert Island game, the balance you want to find is like a game that you would just want to spend an incredible amount of time with on its own terms. And also one that if you were able to, build onto that um that that would be uh compelling as well um and so fallout 3 is that for me apps this is awesome so just to just i just want i'm just interested what would be the first thing you created in your vault would it be like a sort of <laughs> challenge dungeon type thing or would it just be kind of like a home base for your character specifically gosh i mean I think that, well, so the first thing that I would do, I can't remember. I think you can. I can't remember. In in Fallout 3, when you get the mod tools, I think you can edit the actual, like, missions and scenarios and stuff that came with the game. Let's assume we can, since we're going to a fantastical 16-bit Lost Forest anyway. Let's assume you can do that. <laughs> I always, I always wanted to edit the one of the quests in Fallout Three, the Ten Penny Towers uh, quest, because I always, I, I, I never was happy with the resolution of that quest, which is if you broker a piece. So it, that that quest is there's this big tower, and all of the like rich people have moved in there, and it's. Um, 
like all you know heavily guarded and there's a group of ghouls who had lived there and were kicked out and they're basically living in the sewers under the um under the the tower and you can either lead the tower people to kill all the ghouls and get their favor or you can lead the ghouls to kill all the tower people and take it over or you can broker a peace between them so that the ghouls are like living in the tower with the people and they they kind of have you know made it work and you but the way that the quest resolves is if you do that then you come back later and all the ghouls just killed all the people anyway <laughs> and, and took it over. <laughs> uh, and I was always like, I mean, I get it that that's like a fictionally valid thing to have happened, but like within the, the, the kind of structure of a multi-branching path RPG, it always felt like such a dick move to me <laughs> to be like, you worked hard to like broker a piece. And then some of them just killed everybody anyway. Fuck you. I'm like, no, I wanted it to be nice. Um, I want so, everyone to play nicely. I want everybody to get along. That's what I did. Uh, and so my first order of business would be to edit that quest and make it so people just get along if you choose that. <laughs> what a worthwhile uh, waste of your time. <laughs> <laughs> excellent well i think we're gonna to have to move on to your next video game as well and i'm interested to sort of this is a game that's appeared once before and i'm surprised it hasn't appeared too many times because this is an outstanding pc game that has i think it inspired a lot of people so i'm interested to see where you're coming from with this next game and sort of compared to the newest versions in the series as well so let's listen to some music from this next game and let's dive straight into it The next game we're going to talk about from Steve's list is a game that was developed by Ion Storm and published by Eidos Interactive, directed by Warren Spector and designed by Dishonored uh, creative director Harvey Smith all the way back in 2000 for PC. It even received a PlayStation 2 release in 2002 as well. It's the action role-playing first-person stealth game, Deus Ex. Steve, why is Deus Ex going with you to the Lost Woods? <laughs> um... Deus Ex is kind of similar to, I mean, it occupies such an interesting space between a bunch of different genres um, and a bunch of different kinds of game experiences. Um, and, you know, I think that's why it's so beloved and respected, um, you know, up to the present day. But um, it sort of like Resident Evil 4 is the kind, it's a game that has like, this really robust 
mechanical space to play in, and also it has a, an a extensive and kind of very um, continually uh, uh, imaginative campaign that you play through. You go to so many different places, and you're kind of at so many different mindsets over the, the course of the story and everything. Um that it's the kind of game that you play through it end to end, and it's just such a kind of epic experience that um, that you know you've kind of gone through so many different um, uh, uh, kind of views into what that game can be over the course of the campaign that um, I think it makes it feel very replayable. And then within that, there's all there's like a fair amount of kind of like branching and choosing to do to either choose different kind of like story resolutions for different characters or just to approach spaces and conflicts in different ways. And there's the whole, yeah, like alternate upgrade paths for your character and for your weapons, all that kind of stuff that like as a game, there's just so much to it and it comes together in such a unique way that, that it just feels like you could play through that again and again and um, have kind of like, a fairly different experience each time, but also that it's just a great um, flow to to go through end to end when you do choose to replay it. Um, but then within that, I think that part of what's really compelling about it is that it feels like you are exploring a very complete, complex world when you yeah. play that game. You know, it's like a Resident Evil Four level can have a little bit of of like openness to it but it's really kind of like a linear-ish experience. No one space is like huge and sprawling in terms of contain- containing like, for instance, an entire section of a city like Deus Ex does. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when you play Deus Ex, I think, you know, in a lot of parts of it, you're like, wow, I'm in a place, you know, a place that has all of the stuff in it that this kind of place would have and that I can explore completely and that it feels like I really am moving through all of these different actual like locales that I'm able to occupy completely through what I'm doing and the, and the character I am and what they contain and being able to kind of step into that dark conspiratorial, but kind of almost inviting because it's, 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 it's got its own sort of like X files ish, you know, kind of slightly goofy, uh, you know, um, paranoia to it, um, I think is really attractive. Um, so yeah, between what you can do and the fact that you really feel like you're visiting all of these places over the course of the game is the kind of thing that, that I would love to be able to just, you know, go back to at any time. So some of the games you have chosen feature, you know, those branching pathways and that sort of decision-making stuff. Um, obviously, Gone Home is this sort of special narrative piece and mm-hmm. you know very narrative driven it, it, does that appeal to you when you personally play games or um is it more just about sort of making choices and things being of a different variety less so maybe what's actually happening in the narrative um i think that like i i i really enjoy when the narrative is crucial to kind of the feeling of the world and it supports the experience that you're having and that you can care about it um, either for its own sake or as kind of an element of, um, of, of the overall um, experience. Um, 
And so, you know, like I'm, I'm very kind of open in terms of if a game, if the reason to play a game is because the story is really compelling and you want to follow it all the way through, then that's awesome. And if the reason you want to play a game is because it doesn't even have a story, the story doesn't matter, or the story is just sort of like nicely supports the rest of, of what you're doing, then, then that's, that's great too. Um, I think with something like Deus Ex, probably the least, the least kind of like, replayable ongoing aspect of that is the whole like binary choice thing. Like, are you going to let, you know, the, the guy at the top of the statue of Liberty in the first mission live or die at the end, you know, are you going to like flip this switch or not? It's sort of like, once you know what the options are, it, you might make one choice or another just to see how the, um, how the the narrative flow changes, but it's sort of like what's once you know all the paths, it's it's just sort of like neither here nor there, sort of which one you you choose in a lot of ways. The thing that's yeah. more important to me is sort of like, yeah, do I choose to play this stealthily or guns blazing, or do I challenge myself to say I'm not gonna have any hacking skills this time and how do I get through the game? Or yeah, do I relate to these people in a way that's like I'm being a jerk to them or do I try to help everyone? You know, that, that kind of stuff that's really yeah, that free more player driven. Yeah. yeah. That player driven decision where you're restricting or limiting yourself to your own challenges. Yeah. Uh, Cause you, you know, you've worn the game out narratively. You're just playing through for fun now. Yeah. How can I get through this level in the most badass, <laughs> awesome JC Denton way right. I possibly can. Yeah. Or, you know, or you are still engaging with the narrative stuff. It's just sort of like less about, did I choose path A or B and more about like what role am I playing on a higher level within this set of characters and the set of events when I'm playing this time, you know? So not to harp on about Deus Ex too much, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts on then, you know, human revolution and mankind divided who follow a very similar line. You know, they have the player driven choice of how do you want to play this game? Maybe even more options than the original Deus Ex. And then they have this narrative branching path thing as well are you a fan of these games or do you feel like they sort of lost something maybe um i was a i was a huge fan of um human revolution and i I played all the way through mankind divided and i liked it a lot as well i feel like between the two human revolution is the one i would go to personally for kind of some of the same reasons that i mentioned with like animal crossing where i felt like they filed some of the edges off between Human Revolution and Mankind Divided, and I kind of liked some of the clunkiness of um, yeah. of, of Human Revolution. Um, I also felt like they were more successful with like the political themes and, and stuff in Human Revolution than Mankind Divided was. Um, <laughs> so yeah, full bone political, didn't they? Yeah, they they did some stuff. Um, so you know, like given given my druthers, um, I, I overall. Um, would would opt for for human revolution between the two but like i i was super impressed with human revolution because you know i don't know if there's anybody on that team that worked on the original deus ex um maybe they had some consultants or maybe there's like a hand a couple of people or something i'm I'm not really aware but it certainly was almost entirely a completely new team who's like, okay, your job is to make a follow-up to Deus Ex, you know, 12 years later or whatever. Um, and like maybe 10 or 11 years <laughs> later. And that's a huge, 
that's Can't like a huge being in that meeting to, yeah i mean you're just sort of like <laughs> so we have to look at deus ex from the outside and figure out how to make a new one that lives up to that while also being you know like saleable as a however many tens of millions of dollars budget game you know and like that's yeah. a huge huge just probably you know like challenge to bite off and I was amazed that, like, I really felt like they captured so much of what, as a Deus Ex fan, was actually, like, legitimately good and important about that game and modernized it. And uh, I thought it was really cool. Um, and I was, I, if nothing else, I was like, man, nice work, you guys. Like, that was not an easy <laughs> job to get, you know. Okay, so finally, the most important question of all, of mm. course, who wore the sunglasses better? Jason Denton <laughs> or Adam Jensen? <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I think that there is certainly some allure to the fact that J.C. Denton's uh, sunglasses were just sunglasses that he put on and not like <laughs> cyber shades that popped out of his face. <laughs> um, but uh, but I think that I, I, I think that uh, I think Jensen having them integrated means he's never going to lose them. So that's that's true. That's true. But you know, <laughs> we all go through different fashion waves, and there'll be a time when his his type of sunglass shape is right. not like popular, and he'll yeah. look kind of dorky. Yeah, and, and he can't it, get rid of them. Yeah, and at that point, you have to like go to the cyber surgeon to get. You can't just go to the sunglass hut. And that's a, a that's a, a <laughs> that's a little more difficult than JC can <laughs> just buy buy a new pair. <laughs> Well, we're going to move on to your next game now, and okay. we're going to listen to some music from that game, and I think everyone will guess, and I don't think it needs any introduction, because it's just one of the most played games of all time. We've had a lot of games in this list that have featured over multiple platforms, but I don't think any game could beat this one. So let's listen to some music for this next game, and let's dive straight into it. So, of course, if you didn't get it from that music, I have no idea what you would ever get it from. <laughs> released all the way back in 1984. It's been released, as I said, on just every platform known to man. It's it's on your mobile. It's on your DS. It's on your Nintendo. Just everything. Just everything. It's everywhere. <laughs> it always has been. Of course, we're talking about Tetris. Steve, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. But what about you personally? What does Tetris mean to you? And which which version are you actually taking? Well, so I'm not a huge um, Tetris aficionado. Um, I probably would not make a very good choice <laughs> because, like, I'm sure that people who are, like, Tetris, you know, like, hardcore Tetris fans are like, oh, well, 
what you choose is the TurboGrafx-16 uh, Tetris DX, you know, like that had all the best modes or whatever. And I, did, I don't know any of that. Better. It has zero lag and the perfect input. <laughs> right, exactly. And like, I, I don't, there was probably a really good choice for that. There was probably some like super Famicom only never released in the States version of Tetris that is like the one you should choose. But I, you know, I'm, I'm not super picky. Um, I, I, I mean, I played it on the Game Boy. I played it on, you know, like, like you were saying, a number of, of platforms. It's not like it's a game that's hard to get a version of for whatever you want to be using. Um, so, you know, I mean, with the level, like, okay, do we, how much research do we get to do? Do we just show up on this island and then you show up and then they ask you, what games do you want now? And you, you don't get to have like an internet connection to, to, to look stuff up or do you get to like plan this before they send you to Lost Woods? <laughs> Let me open up the rule book. Yeah. Um, no, I have no idea, but okay. let's, for the sake of this example, um, let's say you were forewarned, maybe okay. like the, in Skyrim, you have the like Assassin's Guild <laughs> where they like slide a piece of paper under your door right. like a, okay. with a special mark on it. It's like, here, you are going to the Lost Woods, prepare, <laughs> yeah. prepare your games. Um, so then you can do some research. Yeah, so, I mean, I didn't do that for this podcast. <laughs> so, so to answer your question... I, I in, want to cry. <laughs> in, the, in the situation that, uh, that we're describing, I would go online, do a lot of research, and find out what the canonical, like, best version of Tetris is, and then test it and make sure that I like it, and then I would bring that. In, in the absence of that, I would just take the black and white, you know, original Game Boy version. Maybe the original Game Boy version... And also a Super Nintendo with a Super Game Boy uh, cartridge uh, in it so that I could either play it on an actual handheld or plug it into the SNES and play it with an SNES controller if I wanted to sit back from the screen. Um, but I think that counts because it's the same game. I think, it's just yeah, two no, I think I can allow that. Play I think I can allow that. I think I can, as, as a fan of the Super Game Boy myself, yeah. um, I think I can allow that. Okay, good. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, that, that's, so in the absence of any further research, that's what I would do. Cause you know, like I'm sure that there are better versions of Tetris and everything, but all I really need is just sort of the core game modes. And the whole point of Tetris is that it's such a perfect game design that, and it, and, and it's so pure and it's so focused on only the set of rules that it needs, but also it can only exist really as a digital game because you can't, I mean, you know, whatever. You can make a pen and paper version of, of anything, but it's like an adaptation of that experience. Like it's the, it's, it's, it's the genius kind of game that is so simple and has so few rules that it seems like it could practically exist without a computer, except it's a hundred percent, required for this to be like a real-time digital experience that's being managed by this uh by, by a digital system that is just like such a, a crystallization of good smart like pure game design um and then also as an experience it's like yeah you can play it over and over and over you can get really good at it and it's still like really hard like there's you know there's i don't think like i i watched um a documentary about like the best Tetris players in the world and like the best Tetris players in the world still like, you know, they, 
the best Tetris player in the world, the way they can tell that they're the best is like they get to, I don't know, level 16 or something where basically the blocks are moving faster than human reaction time can be. Yeah, but... I think <laughs> yeah, they're called like Grandmasters, aren't they, or something? It's called well, like Grandmaster mode because I've okay, seen well, like speed running right. events where this well, has happened. Okay, so the the two things that are so okay, so one is competition Tetris where they're just trying to get like as far as they can and make as many points in the base game as possible. And at some point the game just gets faster than a human and you can't outrun it as opposed to like with some old arcade games, you like beat it by getting to a kill screen or whatever. Um, But then there's also, yeah, an arcade version, a Japanese arcade version of Tetris that has grandmaster mode in it where the blocks are invisible so yes yeah, yeah yeah i've seen this yeah yeah and so all you get to see is the preview like box up in the corner and you as the player have to know okay i placed all of these blocks before this one which means i'm visualizing in my head what the shape of the board is because it's invisible and now i know that this block is coming next and i just got it and i can't see it while it's moving i don't think or maybe you can only see the one that's moving i can't remember but like Basically, you have to complete a certain feat of Tetris. I forget what it is. It might just be like getting a Tetris or something, but with all the pizzas being completely invisible and then the game grants you the title of Grandmaster. I don't need that shit. Forget it. I don't need that. I'm fine. I'll just play the normal game. But you're going to have loads of time. You're going to have loads of time. You You could do this. You can do this. I believe in you. Okay, so I'll take a version that is just the best version of core Tetris that there can be with like good responsiveness and ui and all that kind of stuff that also has the grandmaster mode and then i'll See, and then I'll, I'll try it because i am i am gonna have decades to to realize that i could be grandmaster and i won't have a whole lot else to do now i'm tempted to in a few years time come and get you just to see how <laughs> how good you are and maybe take you to like uh, summer games done quick and see if you can like battle the best <laughs> see, well, that would just well, be so cruel because you're like okay come play your little games out in human civilization again all right now back to your forest <laughs> ruthless now now to put the hermit back in his place yeah exactly <laughs> just everything is right with the world again <laughs> well Tetris is incredibly self-explanatory and I think is will fit on so many people's lists who listen to this show. The endless replayability is just absolutely perfect for the situation. And when you're trapped in some woods, what else are you going to do but play with some Tetraminos? So we're going to move on to the next game as well. And it's a game I've never played, but it's also a game that has never actually featured on the show before, but has featured on multiple guests' preliminary lists beforehand on multiple occasions. So I'm very interested to see why finally it is on someone's list. So let's listen to some music from this next game and let's dive straight into it. Thank you. 
so we are now at Steve's second to last game. And we're going to talk about a game that I've never played before, but I have heard about. It was developed by Tarn Adams and published by Bay 12 Games, released all the way back in 2006. It's a construction and management simulation that officially is called Slaves to Armok, God of Blood Chapter 2, Dwarf Fortress, or better known as Dwarf Fortress. Steve, this is featured on so many people's lists, preliminary, and then gets cut. And it's never actually made it, but yeah. now it finally has. So why has it? Well, this kind of goes back to what you were just saying about Tetris, which is about Grandmaster Tetris specifically, which is I have hardly played any Dwarf Fortress whatsoever. Like I did download it and I did generate a world and I did start to look at it. And I was just like, okay, too much here. Not, no, never mind. Um, but I know people <laughs> that have gotten into it and that, it's clicked with them and they can actually do stuff in it. And obviously I think we've all seen the amazing, you know, fan stories of people that can play this game really well. And they yes. end up with all of these epic narratives of their, you know, their, their dwarf, uh, uh, colony and all of its travails and the crazy emergent, you know, like unexpected things that can happen because the game simulates, practically every imaginable aspect of the, the the physical world and like the mental world um of these dwarves and all the other creatures that that live in the in the world with them um and so given the fact that i'm going to be in the lost woods indefinitely with nothing else to do I think it would be a perfect time to actually get good at Dwarf Fortress <laughs> and be able to play it and have those experiences. <laughs> um, and then once you got good enough at it to actually do anything in it, it is such an incredibly deeply simulated, unpredictable world that it seems like once you had the kind of like tools and ability to be able to actually do stuff intentionally in the game and understand the implications of your actions, that it would be this this view into kind of an endlessly dynamic other world um, that would just be kind of intriguing and, and amazing at every step of the way, because like that would be, that's, that's the downside of animal crossing as a pick is sort of like at some point it really only has so many moving parts and you kind of know all of the possibility space that can happen. But in dwarf fortress, there's just like, you know, like the crazy stories you read about like, oh, there was an albatross flying overhead and it was carrying a fish and something, you know, killed it and it dropped the fish and it was high enough up that the fish like attained, you know, terminal velocity and fell on top of a dwarf and killed them and their tooth flew out and hit this other guy and now he's blind, you know, like, and you're just like, <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? Like, uh, all of, all of that stuff is just sort of, um... I think that Dwarf Fortress, once you got into it, would just never stop surprising you. And that seems super valuable in such a dire situation as being in the Lost Woods forever. <laughs> it does seem like one of those that will definitely keep you feeling like you're a part of something bigger than just yourself sitting there playing Tetris. One of yeah. those Animal Crossing type SimCity things that will make you feel less isolated and more involved in these bigger working cogs such as Dwarf Fortress where you know everything is happening and I don't know if you've uh, anyone who's listening has not seen any gameplay of this. It's incredible to look at because it's so confusing because everything is like in 
ASCII text, yeah. essentially. And the world maps and the stuff that is happening is it's just so hard to follow but it's it's just it's huge and incredible it's amazing yeah yeah but you you know that's part of what pushes people away from it including myself is that basically it's just like it's a it's a crazy like symbol language that you have to learn and that's a huge investment um and yeah what better time to invest in (laughs) in that kind of (laughs) yeah uh, challenge of of just decoding this insanely complex thing than uh, being totally isolated with uh, no other responsibilities it's essentially math the game so you just have to in a lot of ways yeah <laughs> get I mean, over that hump and yeah, understand. It's, it's kind of that that balance between math and creativity and and you know kind of soft abstraction of characters motivations and behaviors and stuff but all through this this crazy opaque simulation um yeah i i would love to be able to to really delve into that stuff um but it'll have to wait until i'm until i'm in the lost woods that's fine you can take it with you and you can have all the fun you can while trying to become a tetris grandmaster and also <laughs> somehow getting wrapping your head around dwarf fortress um, right. so you know these things are making me more and more interested to come back and see how you're progressing which is like the first time I've ever sort of wanted to come and rescue someone myself <laughs> after banishing them. Wow. So, yeah. Wow, that would but be quite a twist if... That would if, be if, the if, ultimate twist. <laughs> I mean, what if the ultimate twist was like, yeah, you're banished and you get to pick eight games, but unbeknownst to anyone, you can pick your games so well that you end up being rescued. That's amazing. I know. that. <laughs> damn. I feel like the dungeon master who's just been outwitted. Incredibly. <laughs> but this is another game, I think. The next game we're going to talk about, which is your last game, um, unfortunately, as much as I want to keep you here right now talking about these wonderful games, um, is another game I would like to see how you're progressing along. Because I don't know uh, if you're amazing at the, the, this game or or you're poor and you want to <laughs> practice. Um but we're definitely going to talk about it now because this is a game that's also appeared quite a few times. So many game developers choose this game and I can absolutely see why. So why don't we listen to some excellent music for this next game and talk about Steve's final game. So here we are. We are now getting ready to slip the letter under Steve's door, telling him he has to prepare 
for the island, for, well, the Lost Woods, not an island, but the Lost Woods, uh, where he will be lost forever until I come rescue him, um, which is the big twist of the story today. (laughs) (laughs) But the final game that he's going to be playing, and we're going to find out whether or not now he's any good, or he's going to have to practice like he is with all the other games, um, is Derek Hughes and Moss Mouse, incredible, just chosen so many times on this show before, released all the way back uh, originally uh, as like a PC Flash game, uh, for PC, it got the Spelunky re-release for the Xbox 360, PS3, PS Vita, and PlayStation 4. Of course, it is Spelunky. Steve, why is Spelunky the final game that you're taking with you? I mean, I think like anybody that picks it, it, it has some similarities to the other kind of procedural or purely systemic games on my list. Um, and it is similar to... Um, Tetris or Dwarf Fortress in that I am certainly not a Spelunky master at all. Um, You know, I've played a lot of it and I've gotten to, um, I've, I've only ever gotten, I I don't think I've even ever gotten to the, the actual last boss, like, or even the, the, the like preliminary last boss, the, um, the giant head. Um, I, I've, I've gotten to Egypt before to the, to the pyramid level, but I haven't, ever actually even finished Spelunky. Um, but I have such like a huge appreciation for what it does and it's so tight and it's such a good representation of how procedural level layout and, um, and, and construction of a campaign can be super successful because it's really hard and, and it falls flat a lot of times, but Spelunky has such a clear vision of how to use procedural arrangement of elements in a meaningful way that it feels legit to like replay it and and have a new experience when you do and be able to be in dialogue with the parts of that that are predictable while still having to really react in real time to what's being thrown at you. Um, That, you know, I, again, I have played a fair amount of Spelunky, but I've never invested enough of my time or effort into, like, getting good at it and even finishing the normal campaign, much less getting to hell and finishing, you know, defeating Yama or any of the other, like, more even more difficult challenges than that. Yeah. Um, but given all the time in the world, I, I would I'd be super into getting good at Spelunky. <laughs> and I don't think I would... Uh, <laughs> time soon because it is one of those games that is like once you invest yourself in it it has a lot of different layers about what can be interesting about playing um and i also think it would be cool um well would it i think it would i was about to say i think it would be cool to have like the daily challenge thing be available um uh even if you you know like couldn't be online and compare your scores to like the players or whatever because it's still no you like, can you can still do that you can okay. definitely do that so I could so I could see I, but see that would just be I don't want that though because that would be similarly depressing because it would be like I could see that there are other people out there doing the daily challenge but that's my own <laughs> well it's like, I'm going to leave it in that other human beings but you I'm going to leave it in that so them. you can you can wrestle with that consciously whether or not you want to it's like horrible thing isn't it like maybe when you're in a relationship with someone and you may be a bit nervous about something and you're kind of like do i look do i look <laughs> okay, oh, well, looks, and now i feel terrible yeah so. that's that's bad then i don't want spunky anyway 
<laughs> no, I don't know. I, I think that like regardless of whether you get to see the leaderboards, um, I think the daily challenge thing would still be interesting to have mechanically because it still has this, you know, like unique constraint on it, which is like any spelunky, you know, seed. Um, once you die once, you don't get to retry that same um, that same version of the game anymore. Uh, but there seems like there's some kind of little added uh, value to the idea of having that be the daily challenge once a day. Like, you know, if you are playing a run of Spelunky and you just biff out and fail, you could start over. But there's something about being like, but this is the daily challenge one. So see if you can, if you can get past this. Um, yeah. Uh, even if that really doesn't have much of a difference between a normal run, if you're not, you know, doing it for the leaderboards or comparing who on your friends list made it or didn't or whatever. Um, it still seems like it would be cool to have that slightly different kind of conceptual uh, overhead to, to have this, there, you know, you can play Splunky as much as you want. And also here's that one daily challenge that you can see how far you can get in that each day. That seems cool. Yeah. And as you said, it's that sort of, it's almost like that faint glimmer of hope where <laughs> there is still things being made for other humans. And that includes <laughs> me too, in a small way. Yeah. <laughs> this has appeared so many times now. Spelunky, obviously it has a great, I don't know, sort of fondness within game Mm-hmm. development community space uh, you know we had david from yacht club games uh, yacht club games who chose it as well um uh max temkin as well who created cards against humanity creators obviously see spelunky there's something in spelunky that really appeals to them and yeah. um, so one day we're gonna have to get derek on the show to see what he would choose you should whether he would whether he would choose spelunky himself absolutely yeah <laughs> he's a i mean he's a really um fascinating guy and um anybody that's listening that is a spelunky fan or honestly if you're not a spelunky fan that really doesn't even matter um derek wrote a book about the development of spelunky and the design philosophy behind it that was released by boss fight books yeah um and i i bought it and read it and i think it's just a beautifully well-written almost like meditation on both the making of that game and just the making of games and things in general. And it's really, really, really well thought out and composed by Derek. Um, so you should a hundred percent, honestly, just if you're listening to this at all, you should just go to the boss fight books page and order a copy of the Spelunky book by, by Derek Yu, because it's a wonderful piece of writing. Excellent. So the last thing we're going to talk about Spelunky is what I've found out is that the version of Spelunky you play is really important. So what I've heard is that uh, what I've played personally is the PlayStation Vita version. And what I've heard a lot of is that the Vita version is the preferred version for a lot of people. Hmm. Do you have a preferred version or are you still like a Spelunky amateur that you don't (laughs) quite have your refined uh, console of choice yet? Yeah, um, I only want to play the version that has um, Grandmaster mode in it where the whole map is invisible. If I can't have that, then I don't even want it. (laughs) <laughs> i'm not sure which one that is but as as we are preparing beforehand we will make sure that we can arrange that <laughs> okay but if if that version doesn't actually exist uh, then, then um 
Then I, I, I've all, so I've played it on Xbox 360 and on PC um, with a gamepad. Um, I haven't played it on Vita. I don't own a Vita. Um, I, I don't play a lot of handheld stuff at all because I find it really uncomfortable to like use handheld hardware, like using a DS um using a i actually you know yeah I, I don't know if i've ever used a vita at all but i used I, I had a psp and um actually was a tester on psp games um and i always just find like my hands and my horrible human body just getting all like cramped up and uncomfortable having to like hold the thing that the game is on up to my face um so i doubt that i would pick the the vita version but maybe I would, since you can, like, broadcast the image onto your PS4 and then basically just use the Vita as a gamepad and be um, playing the game on the TV screen. Um, so, yeah, if I had the opportunity, again, to get the, the note from the Dark Brotherhood and try out different versions of the game, I would get it on Vita, set it up, via the the Vita to PS4 link and try playing it in that way and see if that was my preferred version. And if it was, I would take that. Otherwise, I would probably just, yeah, take the PC version again and, you know, use a, a gamepad um, generally or use a mouse keyboard just for, like, novelty's sake if I felt like it. <laughs> okay, well, as we are... I- the thing is, this is now the time where we send people off. But we're not actually doing that with you. We're, we're giving you some time to say goodbye to everyone and also to prepare the versions of the games you want. So I guess we'll get ready to do that now. We'll get ready to say goodbye to Steve. We're ready to maybe pick him up in a week's time to send him on his way to the Lost Woods. And then maybe in a few years' time when he finally becomes a Tetris Grandmaster. The thing is, I'm going to have to guess, aren't I? I'm going to have to try and guess how long I think it will take you. Um, because you have no way of communicating to me yeah. that you have, unless you burn some trees in the Lost Woods and spell out like a, <laughs> I did it. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe you'll, maybe you'll just have to uh, swoop in and, and spy on my progress until you verified it. Because, you know, if I know this stuff going in, that means that I could try to trick you and be like, okay, well, I'll burn those trees in the shape of I am a grand master, and then you'll show up, and then, you know, I'll have a trap set so that you're the one that's captured there. Like, you don't want any of that. Oh, my God. You're going to need independent verification. You you should not have told me this. I know. Well, you shouldn't have told me. See, that's the problem. We both know too much now. This is a disaster. This this we both know too much, but I'm I'm changing everything. We're going to send you to the island right now. No, we're going to send you to the Lost Woods now. You're going to have whatever Tetris version I think of. We're going to get you like the Atari ST version or some horrid version you can't play. <laughs> no, you monster. How can you do this to me? <laughs> Steve, oh my God, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I can't even state how much of a pleasure it's been have to have you on and listen to you talk about these games so eloquently and so wonderfully. So thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you for, for having me on as well and um i'm sorry that you're uh, such a human monster that is going to torture me by giving me <laughs> bad versions of games that i have to play forever but uh i guess that's, that's your own fault my friend sometimes. yeah there, that's, that's how true. the cookie crumbles there we are <laughs> but steve there is one last question i have to ask you what 
it's the same question I ask all my guests before I do send them on their way. And that is, if you could only choose one console to take with you, including the eight games, so don't worry about playing those eight games. But if you could only take one console, barring PC, you can't take PC because you can emulate anything on PC these days. Right. So if you could take any console with you and thinking about the back catalog of those consoles, what console would you take? Um, so my, it really could, so my gut, okay, um, are they allowed to be modded in any way, the consoles, or are they completely factory? Completely vanilla. Okay, all right. That that doesn't really, that probably doesn't really change my, my answer. God, it's so hard. So, like. The starting points are either the PS2 or the Xbox 360 because they just both have huge, really good the, yeah. game libraries. Like they were such dominant consoles during the console generation they came out that like PS2 has just so many good games and Xbox 360 also just like has so many good games on it. And there was such a, a boom of like new IP during kind of the height of the the Xbox 360 generation, you know, between Bioshock and Mass Effect and uh, Assassin's Creed and freaking, you know, Gears of War and all of the other smaller um, UIP kind of things, and then stuff like Spelunky and Braid and everything. But then the only other thing that I can think of is um, the Wii, the original Wii, because of the virtual console and how it does have, like, a lot of good games in and of itself, and it does have, you know, like, the, the motion the motion pointer version of Resident Evil 4 and everything. But it also has access to tons of classic 8-bit and 16-bit games via the virtual console. So if you if you take the Wii, you get all the Mario Brothers titles and Yoshi's Island and Super Metroid and, you know, just sort of like and a bunch of Sega and freaking yeah, TurboGrafx 16 titles and stuff. Um which maybe in some ways uh, kind of overrules the fact that it doesn't have as many of the kind of crucial um, games of that generation that were on other consoles. Um, yeah. But I don't really know. I, I don't know. I, I would have to... I, I think my pick would weirdly yeah, either be... Yeah, it's one of those three, but it's so hard to choose because they all have like good points <laughs> to them. Yeah. You know? Well, if we do decide to let you prepare before you leave, then we'll give you some time to choose that as well. Okay, all right. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, Steve, just good. before Steve, just before we let you go, tell the wonderful people who have listened this far where they can find you on the internet and also what they should be checking out, which I imagine is a game called Tacoma. <laughs> yeah, if you go to um, Tacoma.game or TacomaGame.com, um, you can uh, see a 15-minute gameplay video of, of Tacoma that we did with IGN and that'll kind of give you an idea of what that game is all about that's coming out in 2017 um, and uh, for our last game that came out you can go to gonehome.game or gonehomegame.com and uh, you know the Gone Home is available on PS4, Xbox One PC um, story exploration game um, that was released a few years ago now um, and, uh, both of those games have, uh, Twitter accounts and I'm on Twitter as just at Fulbright, like the name of the company. Um, so yeah, 
check out my stuff online (laughs) do it definitely check out gone home if you can if you haven't which would be amazing because everyone's checked out that game also listen to tone control Uh, interested in game development listen to tone control yeah you can go to idlethumbs.net forward slash tone control and uh there's an archive of 14 episodes that i recorded in kind of the six to nine months after gone home came out i talked to a bunch of notable game developers, including my former boss, uh, Ken Levine, and um, people like um, uh, Brendan Chung, who made 30 Flights of Loving, and Quadrilateral Cowboy, and um, Jake Solomon, the creative director of uh, the Fraxis XCOM games, and uh, Amir and Greg from Supergiant, who made Bastion and Transistor. And there's just a, there's, you know, I was really, really lucky to get to talk to a ton of people who have either been like inspirations to me or just done really um, important uh, work in recent years in the, in the industry. Also some, because this was recorded a couple of few years ago, it's interesting to go back and listen to now because like I interviewed Jonathan Blow while he was in the middle of doing development on the witness, which is now out and you might've played or like why t- I talked to um Jake Rodkin yeah. and Sean Vanneman from uh, Campo Santo, who, if you've played Firewatch, the interesting thing is when I recorded that interview, they were like, yeah, so next week we're going to announce that we're starting this new company. It's called Campo Santo. <laughs> you know, so, uh, <laughs> it, it has some interesting stuff in retrospect if you go and listen to, to those interviews. It's funny. You've actually just reminded me. I spoke to Ken Levine once, mm. and I was like, hey, would you like to come on the show? He was like, great, yeah, sounds good. And I've not heard from him since. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll well, have to get on that at some yeah, point. Yeah, hit, hit him up again. Make him do it. He, he'll have some interesting choices. Like, I, I mean, even though he does, like, narrative FPS games as, like, his thing, he's yeah. huge into, like, really deeply systemic, like, 4X strategy games and stuff like that. So I bet he would have excellent well steve honestly thank you so much for coming on it's been an absolute pleasure yeah and thank you to everyone who's listened to this episode and listens to the show constantly so once <laughs> again thank you for listening to final games this has been the 42nd episode of the show you can obviously find us online uh on soundcloud on itunes on stitcher on god knows every podcasting app <laughs> out there because everyone keeps requesting like there seems to be a new podcasting app every week that i yeah. need to upload the show to so you can do that you can also find us on twitter at final games show and you can also follow me at liam bme on twitter and also a lot of people have been emailing me as always they keep asking me the same question all the time which is when are you going to do your rate i don't know one day <laughs> Not yet. I don't want to subject myself <laughs> to the torture of choosing. <laughs> I only have one game that I definitely would take. Uh, so the other seven still need deliberation <laughs> so far. So yes, if you do want to email uh, anything other than that question, you can email finalgamespodcast at gmail.com. So thank you to Steve and thank you to you guys for listening. And I hope to again see you again next week. Goodbye. Bye, everybody. Thank you.